Some years ago, I heard a little saying that's a little bit like a poem that's uh, directed to preachers, and it's to the tune of that preachers need to be ready for three things. They need to be ready to preach, to pray, and to pass away. <laughs> and I've been praying this morning since I got the word, and... Uh, I guess it looks like I'm here to preach now. I don't want to talk about the third one. Okay, we'll leave that for later. But we're grateful that you are here today. And I, I gave the choir permission if I forgot something that was to be done in the order of worship to yell it out from the choir loft in case I forget. forget. But I remembered about our catechism. We are studying the New City Catechism on Wednesday nights which to me has been a tremendous blessing. And uh, it's not too late to get in on it. There are 52 sessions, and we're just up to coming up to number 11. And if you want to grab the book, it's easy to catch up uh, with that. It's a catechism that's based on some real older catechisms. One of those is the Heidelberg Catechism that I'll probably be referring to this morning uh, a little bit. But a great study, and this morning we're going to read through question, I think it's number 11. Thank you, Ryan. Number, the question is number 11. I will read the question, and then I'm going to ask you to read the answer with me after the question. The question is, what does God require in the 6th, 7th, and 8th commandments? Let's read the answer together. Six that we do not hurt or hate or be hostile to our neighbor, but be patient and peaceful, pursuing even our enemies with love. Seventh, that we abstain from sexual immorality and live purely and faithfully, whether in marriage or in single life, avoiding all impure actions looks, words, thoughts, or desires, and whatever might lead to them. Eighth, that we do not take without permission that which belongs to someone else, nor withhold any good from someone we might benefit. The study will be Wednesday night on that 11th answer. I'm going to ask you to turn with me, if you would please, in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. And uh, my mind started jumping around this morning uh, about what to share with you. And uh, this was not the first passage that came to my mind, but it came real quickly. And I was thinking this earlier, and I shared with it, this with one of the choir members. When you hang around a place long enough, you're going to start repeating yourself probably after a while. And the first time I ever spoke from 1 Peter chapter 5 at Wake Chapel Christian Church was 1989. And uh, the last time I spoke from 1 Peter chapter 5 was last year. And there were some times in between when I spoke from 1 Peter chapter 5. The first time and the last time were on Wednesday nights. 
and I have spoken from this passage before on Sunday morning. Uh, and so one of the conclusions I have come to this morning is that I need to hear this passage. And maybe you do too. I want to read the verses and then a life force to pray together. I'm going to focus uh, on verses 6 through 11, 1 Peter chapter 5. So let me read those verses and then we'll pray. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you have chosen to speak to us. We thank you that there are some things that you have spoken in creation. The heavens declare your glory. The firmament shows your handiwork. Day to day utter speech. Father, we are thankful that you have chosen to speak to us more completely in your word. And we thank you that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in right living. Father, we are grateful that you have spoken to us amazingly personal in your son, Jesus. And we're grateful this morning that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Father, we pray that you would give us grace this morning to behold his glory in your word. We pray, Father, that you would give us grace to see our need for grace. And Father, that you would give us grace to come boldly to the throne of grace where we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Lord, we commit our time to you and pray that you would teach us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I believe that the whole message of the book of 1 Peter is quickly becoming more urgently and needed and more relevant for the followers of Jesus Christ in the 21st century. I'm not a prophet, and I'm not the son of a prophet. I'm the son of a truck driver. But I want to try to make a prophecy this morning. If our culture and society 
And even if government policies continue to go in the way that they have been going, Christians will experience more and more pressure and even persecution from hostility to the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. Peter was writing to a group of Christians who lived in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And they were experiencing a variety of trials because of their faith in Jesus. He reminded them of the life that they had in verse in chapter 1, and we don't have time to go through that, but there in chapter 1, he tells them, you've got a new life, you've got a new wealth, you've got a new hope, you've got a new security, you've got a new identity, you've got a new destiny, but it's not before long that he also reminds them, you've got a new set of problems because you're followers of Jesus Christ. And we read these words in chapter 1, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And just as Jesus told his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation, these believers to whom Peter is writing were experiencing what Jesus had promised. In this world you will have tribulations. And it's interesting to me that five times in the book of 1 Peter, there are two words that, that appear close to one another in proximity in the text, but they seem to be almost opposites in meaning. And it's the idea of suffering and the idea of glory. And we don't have the time to look at all five of them this morning. We'll see a couple of them in our passage that we're looking at today. But Peter is talking about suffering, and he talks about the suffering of Jesus. And he's talking about the sufferings of these believers. They're going through a variety of trials. But he's also talking about the glory that followed Jesus' sufferings. And he's also talking about the glory that's going to follow the sufferings of the followers of Jesus today. And in the meantime, Peter wants his readers to stand firm. I want you to look at a verse I haven't read yet in chapter 5. For there we see, I believe, Peter's overall purpose in writing this short letter. Look what he said in, in chapter 12 of verse 5. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand in the grace of God. And he's going to remind his readers, you need this grace. And I want you to stand in it. So as there's suffering now and there's glory to be later, Peter wanted his readers in the meantime to stand in the grace while they're waiting. 
And near the end of the letter, in the verses that we have just read, I believe Peter gives us some guidance as to how we can stand. Years, well, not only years ago, decades ago, when I was in seminary, uh, I had a part-time job at a pharmacy. I was uh, an assistant to the pharmacist, to the real pharmacist. I helped to deliver medications to nursing homes. I'd fill the little trays that had the, the unidose pills in them and pack them in the car and take them to Prairie View Nursing Home and one or two others. One time in the store, we, we ran out of one of the medicines that we needed to pack up and send. And so the pharmacist where I worked sent me to a pharmacy located in the same small town, Warsaw, Indiana. And I went over there, and there was a lady in line at the counter waiting to get her medicine, and she said something that was so striking to me when I heard it. I had to write it down when I went home, thinking this will be good to use in a sermon someday. (laughs) And sure enough, I've used it plenty of times already here at Wake Chapel. But this is what she said to the pharmacist. She said, give me something to keep me going, something to put me to sleep, something to take away the headache, and something to take away the dark clouds. And as I thought about that, I, I said it was striking, and I was reflecting on it. She could have gotten something for the first four things, probably, but not for the last one. There's not a pill that we can take to take away dark clouds of trials. And when we get together in a room this size and this many people here, and if we all knew everything that was going on in in every life, we would probably just want to go home and take a long nap or take a pill to put us to sleep. There are a lot of burdens, not only in this room, around the world, in our state, in our country, in Ukraine, in other countries of the world. There are no pills to take away the dark clouds, but for the followers of Jesus, there is grace in which we can stand while we're waiting for the glory. And Peter helps us, I think, and I want to look at three encouraging words from this passage that I hope will be encouraging to your heart as they are needful to my heart. First of all, accept difficult times as from the hand of God. Now, that's a mouthful. Accept difficult times as from the hand of God. Look what he said in verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, are you following with me? Under the circumstances. No, that's not what it says. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I'm so glad Peter did not say, 
Humble yourselves under the circumstances. Now, that happens. But beyond the circumstances, there's another hand. And it's the hand of God. God is in control. You know, it's kind of scary for me to preach this. Because eventually the Lord says, okay, you've preached it. Are you going to live it? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. This phrase, the mighty hand of God, I don't know if you're reading through the Bible in a year. A lot of times when we get over to Leviticus, we kind of get bogged down. I know I do, but I try to keep plugging along. I'm not to Leviticus yet. I'm still in Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, when the Lord is describing the Exodus from Egypt, God bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt, he uses this phrase in one way or another several times, under the hand of God. And the Lord is making clear that he is making clear to Israel and to the Egyptians that there's only one God. And what is happening is happening under his mighty hand. And it's interesting to me that Peter uses this phrase, under the mighty hand of God. I can't help but believe that Peter, uh, a good Jew, knew his Old Testament very well, knew the book of Exodus very well, knew about the references to the mighty hand of God. Israel experienced a great deliverance at the Exodus. Wouldn't you say when God took them after those plagues, water to blood, frogs everywhere, gnats, darkness, then finally the firstborn being killed, 10 of them, then he delivered them. But think about it. Believers in Jesus today have experienced a far greater exodus. We've been delivered from sin. We've been delivered from death. We've been delivered from Satan's authority power, domination, influence, all through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And if that same deliverance includes circumstances of trials, and all of it is under His mighty hand, if we experience difficulties because of our faith in Christ, those difficulties are part of of the deliverance. And all that occurs in the lives lives of God's people are under his mighty hand. How do we accept difficult times as from the hand of God? First of all, I believe by submitting. Look at verse, again at verse 6. He says, be humbled under the mighty hand of God. That's a passive verb that Peter is using. He's saying, allow yourselves to be humbled. Something else is going on that's doing the humbling. Now you be humbled. Allow yourself to be humbled. Go through the humbling process. Um, 
anytime you do a Bible study and you see the word therefore, of course, you're supposed to try to figure out what it's there for. And here in, in verse 6, it says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. Why did he say therefore? Look up at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Let me stop there for just a second. A theme we don't have time to look at this morning in the book of 1 Peter is the theme of submission. He talks about submission of in the slave-master relationship, chapter 2. He talks about submission to government authorities in uh, chapter 2. In chapter 3, he talks about submission in the home. Wives, be subject to your husbands, he says in chapter 3. Here in chapter 5, he's talking about submission in the church. Look what he says. Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And then this, look what he says. For God opposes the proud, but gives what to the humble? Grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God doesn't give this kind of grace he's talking about to everybody. He gives it to the humble. But God opposes the proud. God has set his armies against the proud. Pharaoh learned that in the book of Exodus. People learn that today. And you know, I was thinking, in the time of Jesus, Jesus was ministering to and among people who all needed the grace of God, but only some of them were aware of it. And one of the groups that were not aware of it were the religious leaders of their day. They thought they had their act together. But Jesus gave grace to the humble. People who were broken because of their sin. People who were aware of their need. People who had hungry hearts and were aware of it. So he says, God, by the way, it's in quotations in chapter 5, which means I believe that Peter is referring to something that's in the Old Testament. It's all through the Bible. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So that's why he says in verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore. You want to know God's grace? Allow him to take you through a humbling process if that's what's going on. And find his grace like you've never found it before. Find his grace like you've never tasted it before. Be humble, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. It also involves waiting. Something we all love to do. Be humble, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. That word, proper time, two words, is one Greek word, and it has the idea of a fitting situation 
that's characterized by suitable circumstances. It's like a season of life, a block of time, a fitting time. And Peter is saying, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. And he knows what that time is. And it will be timely. And it will be the right time. And it will be the good time. So waiting involves focusing on his activity, focusing on his purpose, realizing that there is purpose in being humbled under his mighty hand. I mentioned earlier that five times in the book of 1 Peter, there are, there's the theme of suffering and, and glory put together. Peter refers to that suffering and glory here in chapter 5. Look at verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as fellow elders, as a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. So Peter says, I was an eyewitness of his sufferings. Peter saw it. But he says, not only was I an eyewitness of his sufferings, he says, I'm a partaker of the glory that he already has that is going to be revealed later. Now, that glory for believers today has not been revealed yet, but it's going to be. And we're called upon to watch and wait. I mentioned the Heidelberg Catechism. That's one of the catechisms that the New City Catechism that we're studying is based on. It's um, got one of its answers, 26, says this, In God I trust and doubt not that even all the troubles which he sends to me in this veil of tears, he will turn to good. I love the way he phrase this. He didn't say that even all the troubles which happen to occur in my life. No, he says, which he sends to me in this veil of tears. He says, I trust that he will turn them all to good. That reminds me of Romans 8, 28, where it says, God is able to cause all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Recognizing or accepting difficult times as from the hand of God involves submitting and waiting, but I think also it involves thirdly in verse 7, casting our cares upon him because here we are. What are we going to do? There you are. What are we going to do? And Peter says, this is what you need to do, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Sounds pretty simple. Not so easy sometimes to put into practice, is it? I tend to believe that a lot of the psalms that are written are psalms that are showing me how to do this, how to cast my cares upon the Lord. 
And uh, you'll find yourself sometimes in the Psalms that you read where he's saying something like, how long, Lord, are you going to forget me? How long are you going to hide your face from me? How long am I going to take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all day long? How long is the enemy going to be exalted over me? So it's not, oh, me, but it's kind of like, oh, me. Lord, how long? But he keeps on going and he keeps on praying. And at the end of that Psalm 13, he says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. I will rejoice in your salvation. And he kind of goes through a, I don't know, maybe a catharsis, a faith struggle, fighting the good fight of faith, and eventually casting his cares upon the Lord and realizing afresh and anew, it matters to him concerning me. And literally, that's what the phrase means when it says he cares for you. It matters to him concerning you. There are some religions that are based on doing things trying to get God to care for you. Christianity is realizing he already cares for me. He wants me to trust him. He already loves me. He made me. He ordains my steps. He's put me where he wants me in his sovereign plan. He has allowed to come into my life through his hands what has happened. And he loves me like no one can. It matters to him concerning me. So Peter says, casting all your cares upon him. I love it that Peter's the one who writes these words. Think about Peter. We know Peter. If you've read the Gospels, you know Peter. We love Peter because Peter was a mess. That's one of the reasons I love Peter. Peter didn't have it together. And it even took him a while to to learn that, that he didn't have it together, even after he was following Jesus, because he said, Lord, though everybody else forsake you, I'm there. And you know what the Lord told him, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. And here's Peter, years later, And he says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You know, worry is a subtle form of of pride. Um, I've mentioned this in in the hearing of some of you several times. So here I am. I'm old enough to repeat myself. I'm not apologizing for it. I had a birthday last week. I'm well old enough. Uh, my mother used to call me worry wart, worry wart, because it seemed like if I wasn't worrying about something, it worried me that I didn't have something to worry about. I <laughs> needed to look around so I could kind of, you know, be worried about something. I mean, who's in charge of this whole thing anyway? 
right? Worry is sin because it denies the love of God. It believes he really doesn't care for you. Worry is sin because it denies the wisdom of God. It says he doesn't know what he's doing if he allowed this to happen. Is he really in control? Worry is sin because it denies the power of God. It says God can't help me in this. God can't do anything about this. Worry is sin because it denies the sovereignty of God. He's in control. I so love this phrase that Peter said. Peter said, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Because Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus gave Peter a great catch of fish when he needed it. Jesus helped Peter pay his temple tax by telling him to go catch a fish and take a coin out of its mouth. Jesus repaired the damage to Malchus's ear that Peter had done with his sword when he tried to cut off his head. And then in Acts chapter 12, Jesus delivered Peter out of prison. Jesus knew what it meant to say, casting all your cares on him. It matters. But carefree living doesn't mean careless living. And Peter goes on and says in verse 8, Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I think a second word of encouragement when we're under the dark clouds of trials is to stand fast against the enemy of your soul, the devil. The only reference to spiritual powers of darkness in the, in the book of 1 Peter are right here in this verse. And it's a reference specifically to the devil. And look at the words Peter uses. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. And here again, remember, this is Peter. One of the things Jesus said to Peter, James, and John when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. And the same word that Peter heard then from Jesus' lips Peter uses now in verse 8 when he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. So he encourages us to be alert. There are, are probably extremes that the believer may have when one extreme is being ignorant of the enemy. And that's what Peter's guarding against here. He says, you be sober-minded. You be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, is walking around like a roaring lion seeking to devour people. On the other hand, there may be some who see a demon behind every bush and they're preoccupied with demonic powers. That's not the stand either. The stand is to be sober-minded, to be watchful, and to resist. Know there is an enemy. 
resist the enemy and to keep our eyes on Jesus. Beware of the enemy. He says he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Somebody has said that the enemy of our soul is a master of camouflage. I had not really thought of it in those terms until I read that phrase from this guy, that the enemy of our souls is the master of camouflage. Somebody says, sometimes he comes like a snake seeking to lure people into moral corruption. That happened in the Garden of of Eden. Sometimes he disguises himself as an angel of light. We read in Corinthians. Attempting to deceive people in the spiritual realm. And even in the realm of false teachings. Here he's described as a roaring lion. He is bent on terrorizing God's people in the midst of being persecuted for their faith. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And it's it's interesting. When a lion roars, sheep are going to scatter. Naturally. I mean, if, if sheep hear a lion roaring, they're going to scatter probably. And it's interesting that Peter earlier in, in uh, chapter 5, refers to, uh, to sheep and a shepherd. He says, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God. And he says this, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, not domineering over those in your charge, not for for shameful gain, but being examples to the flock. The enemy of our souls wants to scatter God's people and to scatter them from trusting the Lord. But Peter also said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, you who were straying like sheep have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. And that's Jesus. He's the shepherd. He's the overseer of your soul. This enemy is personal. Peter says he is your adversary. He is a living personality, and he's not a respecter of persons. This enemy is persistent. He is continually prowling around, continually seeking someone to devour, and his purpose is always destructive. His purpose is never to make you strong. It's always to devour you. One guy who's a, one of the professors at Southern Seminary has said this from this passage. He says, alertness and awareness are necessary because the devil is prowling about and he's using suffering to roar at believers, hoping to frighten them into apostasy and hence to destroy their faith. But Peter says, verse 9, resist him. How? He mentions two things. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
do we resist the devil? Two ways, in faith and in knowledge. Faith in the good shepherd who has spoken to us in his word. Learning, knowing, claiming, standing on the promises. But also knowing, and I love what he says here, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being accomplished in your brotherhood throughout the world. Um, It was John Calvin who says that one of the things the devil wants to do is to sever us from the body of Christ and to forget that we're not in this battle even here on the human level alone. We've got brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning who are undergoing tremendous pressure and burdens and troubles, trials, difficulties. Some of them are on our prayer list. Most of them aren't. They're ongoing things that some people just maybe don't want to share right now. But Peter says, knowing this, the same kind of thing, you're not, listen, this is not unique to you. It helps me to remind myself, what you're going through is not unique to you. It's happening to brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world. And I couldn't help but think this morning before coming up here just about, we've got brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine. Just think about them. Uh, other countries of the world, not to mention here in this room this morning. So know this, your brothers and sisters in Christ are going through the same things and again, I love it that Peter wrote these words because there was a time in Peter's career when Jesus said this to Peter, Simon, Simon, mentions his name twice. That's almost like your mom and dad saying, David, Stephen, Brown, come here. (laughs) Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you What did Jesus say that I prayed about? That your faith may not fail. That your faith may not fail. Faith is pointing to somebody else. It's pointing to the one you're trusting in. That your faith doesn't fail. Peter, you're going to fail. I'm praying your faith won't fail. And the Lord keeps going and says, And Peter, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's what he's doing here in 1 Peter. The Lord returned him. The Lord brought him back. And now here he is. Well, I could read you what Peter said to the Lord after that, and I think I will just to make it more emphatic. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Well, you know the story. But the Lord didn't bring him back. The final, I'm running out of time here. It's, it's 
case anybody was wondering, it's 1129. <laughs> it's getting close to lunchtime. That's the reason your stomach is growling. Actually, it's really only 1029. <laughs> no. I'm glad I remembered to do that this morning. But I want to just mention the last thing, and that's this. Trust God to put things right. Because he's going to do it. The question is, am I going to trust him? Trust God to put things right. Look what Peter said in verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I like the way Peter piled those words up. Peter needed all of that. He needed to be restored. He needed to be confirmed. He needed to be strengthened. He needed to be established. And then he says to him, be dominion forever and ever. Trust God to put things right because of who he is. He's the God of all grace. And he's the God of purpose. He's got a purpose in it all. Because of who he is and because of what he's doing and because of what he's going to do. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the ability to read Holy Scripture to one another in a service such as this today. Thank you, Father, for Peter, exhibit number one of a man who needed grace and a man who experienced grace and consequently was involved in strengthening others. Father, again, I pray this morning that you would give us grace to see our need of grace and grace to come. To Jesus and to keep looking to him because he's the author and the finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.